welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. Today, I'm here with Mike Watts. Mike is an awesome and insightful guy who's worked with Glassjaw, Oh Brother, As Tall as Lions, As He's Burn, Tides of Man, The Deer Hunter, Story of the Year, all sorts of bands. And he gives us a lot of great insight into what he does and his feelings about music, which I think are fresh and unique on this podcast. And as well, um, there's been a lot of talk about on this podcast, one of those records that people continually list as being an influential one is Naz City's Burn record. We get a little insight into that. Before we get started with the show, I also want to tell you about something Noise Creators is starting to do that we think is pretty cool and we're pretty excited about, is that we will be taking song critique submissions. Now, what this means is, is some of our producers are going to be doing some commenting on your songs if you submit them. So if you head over to our blog, you can find an entry that uh, says song critiques. And if you just fill out a form, it literally takes 60 seconds. Uh, One of our producers, they're going to, well, I should say this, a bunch of our producers are going to go through them and they're going to figure out which ones they have comments for and they're going to do stuff. It'll help you get some insight on your songs, what you can be doing better all for free. So check that out. As well, after you get done with this interview, head on over to Mike's Noise Creators profile, get to know him, listen to his Spotify playlist, read his discography in his bio, and get to know him better. Thanks, and check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? My choice today was to record through a vintage Neumann a U47 short body from mm. 1956. Wow. <laughs> Stephen Paul modded. Yeah, it's my favorite mic in the studio. And uh, we did that through a vintage Neve 1081, through mm. a Mohawk 1176 with a Neve transformer in it, and through a Burl Audio B2 Bomber converter into Pro Tools HD 12. Very, very cool. So tell me about your background in music. You know, I started as a kid, probably like six, seven years old, tapping some drumsticks in my dad's car, and he bought me a snare drum. It was one of those memorable moments, and uh, I kind of never stopped. I played drums all through you know, uh, grammar school and high school, took lessons when I was a kid from seven till 17, Ended up being president of band and all county, all state drummer, that kind of hoopla. But 
you know, back in the day getting a career or touring in a van with your band. It was either you were a super high profile artist that played stadiums or you were a cover band. Hmm. So <laughs> I opted to go to school originally for business management college, hmm. you know, and, uh, my and I finished that degree, and uh, I was working in restaurants as a restaurant manager, and I had to kind of get back into music. So I went back for music ed with a percussion major, and I finished that probably when I was about 27, 28 years old, and just opened a really small studio because I had the bug. Always had the same thing as everybody else, a little mm -hmm. place in my basement recording you know, artists and bands and things like that, and it just kind of grew into this 20 years later. Very cool. So tell me about the transition from it growing into uh, from your basement into what uh, Voodoo is now, which from the pictures I've seen on the internet is much more than a basement studio. <laughs> Believe it or not, mm. that uh, what you're seeing is a garage. I, mm. I moved out of a commercial facility that I had for 15 years, and uh, I got kind of got tired of paying rent there and having a mortgage on a house. It was killing me double prices, so my wife and I searched for a big enough house so we could put a legitimate recording studio in. So luckily, we found a place that had a, a garage with a 12-car garage with 32-foot ceilings. So we were able to kind of wow. carve it into sections. And it had a, an apartment connected to it on both sides. So one is a, a mix room with an overdub. And the other one is a live room with another control room. And then we have a, a guest quarters for bands to stay in overnight and stuff. So yeah, the transition from the basement Hmm. Wow. Uh, you know, just writing and recording, believe it or not, kind of R&B music for, mm. for singers and female artists. I found myself in a studio. Uh, somebody discovered one of the girls I was working with and kind of ponied up the money for me to go to in a big place. And the minute I walked in there, I decided I didn't want to be in bands or play uh, anymore on stage. I just knew I was going to be a studio rat for the rest of my life. And mm. uh, I just continued to, you know, piece by piece, nickel by nickel, moved out of the basement into a very small, almost rehearsal studio, just had two rooms and uh, my two cats and I lived there in the place, you know, in the studio and had a control room and a live room and I recorded bands for pennies, you know, just like it was in the, you know, basement for pennies, for nickels. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I stumbled across a couple of decent bands and it, it kind of grew into something a little better, you know, and it's, it's always baby steps and an uphill climb. It's still, you know, uh, uh, every day is a, a slow progress forward, you know, that that's, that's the way it kind of keeps going for a long time. I agree, completely agree. And I, I think that that is actually some very, very good insight that we don't always hear on this. Um, so you've told me some stuff that makes your studio unique. Tell me about one of the coolest pieces of gear your studio has. Wow. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, pristine recording sounds and quality. So uh, this vintage Neumann is one of my favorites. My mm. my Neve 1073 racks are my favorites. And uh, I love recording through Burl converters. They're, mm. they're just incredible. It changes your life. <laughs> great, great stuff. Yeah. What instruments do you play? Again, I started as a drummer, percussionist, and then my mother was nice enough to buy me a guitar when I was 13. I had that bug. And my, my siblings were kind of musicians, too. My two brothers, one of them played accordion, the other one played trumpet. 
and the trumpet player brother was in a Chicago cover band, and the bass <laughs> player left his bass at my house. So I decided to start playing bass at 12, 13 years old, and there was an organ in my basement, so I played that. So it's drums, guitars, bass, and piano is what I play. And because I went to school for music ed, they really enforce you to play piano like for three years straight so i got wow effective at that instrument too along with drums but that's a good education so we have like a saying on the podcast you have like on one side of things you have like the steve albini who will just kind of comment on uh he'll get the mic set up and he might make a, a commenter here too but he's not gonna get involved in your songwriting and then you have like a john feldman who rewrites your songs for you if we put that on a scale where do you see yourself most often falling on that scale uh, songwriting, mm -hmm. more on the Albini side. Mm. As far as, you know, rewriting melodies or rewriting lyrics for bands, I I think if I do that, then all the bands start sounding like Mike Watts, and I don't want to do that. I will definitely help on the song structure and the dynamics part of it and the rhythm section. So on that aspect, I'll lean on the other side of the fence. But I don't really like writing people's lyrics for them or their melodies for them, you know, unless... I feel that it needs to. Then we'll audition stuff until it feels right. Very, very good answer. So what do you think you bring to records most often? I'm really a firm believer in organic sounding recordings where the bands sound like musicians playing and not robots. So I go through painstaking performances, capturing sounds properly, I want a band to be unique. I want each band to come through and sound like themselves. I just did a Gates record. Mm. Now, that will sound way different than the Hail the Sun record I just finished. Mm. Two very distinct bands. I would never want them to sound the same. I don't want Oh Brother to sound like the Deer Hunter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so far on this opposite side of spectrum sort of thing. So I don't. I try my best to not get in the way with my production and, and just give them my same old, same old over and over. I want them to have a unique identifier when they come through here. Very cool. I know my roommate is really looking forward to that Gates record. She loves them. So what is a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? I think over-demoing. Mm. They can really over-demo. Everybody has a Pro Tools system, and that's one of the greatest things ever because demoing your music is fantastic when they come in and get demoitis a little too deep where mm. they won't let go of what they've come up with it gets more and more difficult to offer you know productive ideas when they're so set and they've heard this for you know six months or so the way it is it's hard to change and convince them that something could possibly be better you know it, it, it is funny on this podcast. It's like it's a constant thing of uh, it's under demoing or over demoing, and I, I, I kind of feel like it's like sometimes the thing of uh, the last girl broke your heart. That's the uh, thing that's wrong with the uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Um, what's a big mistake or a smart thing you see bands do with vocals? Smart things with vocals, uh, rewriting their lyrics over and over until they've come up with something unique and something that's heartfelt and something that's believable and has conviction as opposed to the biggest mistake is writing the same lyrics that everybody else has written for the same 50 years, the hmm. sides, the, you know, the shtick go-to stock lyrics. Hmm. I can't stand hearing it over and over again. A band comes in and my soul will burn. I'm like, come on, man. 
Be unique. Be unique, period. That's what will give you a career. Be yourself. Be unique. If you think you're writing something somebody else has, change it. I'm not saying you have to be overly poetic or so heady that it's indiscernible, but make it part of you and part of your personality. That's why I don't like ghostwriters very much either. Mm, I I am with you, actually. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Working at night after the session's over. Mm. Really trying to make sure they're prepped for the next day. You know, they stay here for the most part when they work on records with me. So they do their homework, you know, work on melodies, work on your cadences. The more you know, you know... I understand when bands are touring and they're doing so many other things, half of them have jobs when they get home, so they don't have time to really, you know, work on the music as much as they would like, especially vocals. But if they can practice their cadences of vocals so it's convincing when they sing and it doesn't sound like they're reading, Mm. same with guitar. If they're learning their part in the studio, it doesn't come across as convincing as if they really know it you know, like the back of their hand. So practicing at the end of the sessions is very, very good in preparing for the next day. That's that's great advice. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? They do it my way or I throw it out. I'm just <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, the best part of recording or what I tell bands when they first walk in is we're going to disagree all the time. And we should embrace that because that means they care and I care. You don't want to come in and just have me be the yes man or say, hey, I'm going to write your songs for you. Mm. You want to disagree. You want to go through arguments because then the best results come out. So what we normally do is we'll sit and audition and discuss what feels best and do a democratic approach. And if everybody's feeling one way, then that's the way it's going to be. At the end of the day, the artist has to live with their record. I move on to the next record. They have to live with their baby forever. So they have to really be happy with what they get. I like that. Let's get into how you feel about some modern production uh, stuff. Uh, Do amp simulators have a role in your productions? I don't even know what that is. (laughs) Really? I mean, I've heard, obviously I know what it is, but I think think it's ridiculous. You know, I have... (laughs) A, a substantial amount of amplifiers here because I like the way air pushes into a microphone and you can't mm. attain that with an amp simulator or any kind of clone. You know, it just doesn't sound dimensional to me. Music is supposed to have a 3D quality, just not left-right pan. It's supposed to sit in the front and the back, and I strive for that with my records. You can't get that without pushing air into microphones. Mm. Same with, like, programming drum tracks. I just, ugh, drives me crazy. Learn how to mic drums. It's such a better sound it embraces the listener. It will make them really uh, enjoy your music more and feel your music instead of just listening to your music. So Amp Simulators play zero, absolutely nothing in my production. Nice. And I, you kind of touched on it, so I have a feeling that we're going to get a similar response for programmed-sampled drums. Uh, you know, as far as programming drums, I'm not going to program drums for a band. Never. It's not mm-hmm. going to happen. As far as sample drums, you know, just like the old days when we used to gate a second snare or duplicate a snare track and gate it and treat that differently as far as compression and EQ and, you know, doing the reverb send from that track, mm. you know. So we'll take samples of the session during the day of the, of the drum sound we're getting. So I will enhance, you know, drum mixes with drum samples. Absolutely. As far as replacing them, that will never happen. And if you look mm. at the percentage of drum samples in my mix compared to real drums, it's about 5 to 8% max mm. of the listen. If you turn them off, you won't even notice that they were there. Very cool. The next one is, uh, how about pitch correction? Picture correction is, you know, something that's absolutely necessary sometimes. And, you know, with the standards nowadays, if somebody's out of tune, uh, it's not acceptable. People are going to, you know, 
question if I noticed it or not, or my ear, can I hear, you know, the, the pitch? And luckily, I have pretty good pitch, and I notice when it's out of tune. So I'll use pitch correction where you can't tell I'm pitch correcting. I don't use Melodyne because that, ha- that adds a strange texture to the vocal that makes it sound like a robot to me. Mm. So I, I use old school Pro Tools pitch correction. I'll grab just like words or phrases and bump them up and down as opposed to Melodyning keyboard vocal sound. Hmm. That's a rare one. The, you know, the Melodyne is the most popular answer on this. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like the texture that it adds to the vocal. You know, you're running th- when you record vocals here, usually you're running through about a $20,000 signal chain. I'm not going to let a mm. $100 program ruin that. <laughs> nice. Um, do you have uh, any favorite soft synths? Not really, you mm. know. I mean, I have a tons and tons of libraries. I mean, you know, whatever is fitting. I usually end up using real Fender Rhodes and B3s and mm. stuff like that for keyboards. And maybe we dabble into Absinthe, you know, or some sort of keyboard stuff like that and Pro Tools or whatever. But again, uh, um, most of my artists are, are d- dabbling with B3s and Rhodes or, you know, Wurlitzer type of stuff. How about three favorite guitar amps? Three favorite guitar amps. I have, I love my Vox AC30. Mm-hmm. I love my orange Tiny Terror, believe it or not. Yeah, I have one too. It's a great amp. I have a vintage reverb rocket, which sounds wonderful. Most people don't. That's like the unsung hero. Hmm. You know, when you hear a clean guitar on a record I've done, uh, it's usually my guild through a reverb rocket. It's a 1966 reverb rocket. And nice. Wow, it sounds wonderful. That's awesome. Do you master your own records? I usually, I mean, we do. Of course, we offer mastering, but I usually don't like to. I like to send it out to a next set of ears who will real, do a real nice, again, analog mastering. Of course, I can put a plug-in limiter in EQ and do some, you know, like a, a spread on it and make it wider. But I'd much rather send it out to, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 of analog gear and have that texture treat my stuff. Again, it's about the front-to-backedness sound for me and not a big loud sound. Mm. a width sound you know so when my mastering guys run it through analog gear it has a whole different texture than just plug-in mastering nice so let's get into a little bit more of your personality um what's something you believe that everyone else thinks you're crazy to think oh how about people should buy records (laughs) music should not be free (laughs) you know these people and labels and friends of mine spend a fortune making records and time and energy making records and kids still steal Mm -hmm. and it's still illegal and it's still theft just because you can't put your hand on it it's still art still holds value you want your artists to continue making art for you support your support your you know be fans and support them and buy music nice how long does it do you usually like to take to work on a song in a recording context and then how long does it usually take you to mix a song a good time to spend on a song would probably be two to three whole days Mm -hmm. that's about 30 hours and to mix can be anywhere from six to ten hours with Mm -hmm. revisits i do tons of automation and tons of eq automation and change things around to create dynamics throughout the song it just doesn't mean volume dynamics i'll do eq dynamics i'll make it a little darker and warmer in verses and brighter and more open in choruses nice what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer <sighs> stay out of the way of a vocalist mm. you know try not to overproduce them and i, I you know 
many times now I, I kind of preach that same thing. It was my partner. His name was Steve Hagler. Mm, yeah. And uh, he would always be, I would always be telling the singer, sing like this, do this, do that. And he would look at me and be like, that's not how the singer sings, man. Let mm. them be themselves. Let them be unique. And I said, you know what? You're right. Mm. And now when I'm working with a vocalist, the band is always chirping in my ear. Don't you want to sing like that? Don't you? I'm like, no, I want them to sing the way they sound. I don't want him to sound like, you know, the guy from Nickelback. <laughs> I want him to sound like him and I want him to deliver. Of course, I'll coach him through conviction and notes and length of notes and how to attack things and approach things. But I'm not going to remove him from his parameters and, and his skill set because you're going to get in a vocalist head and you're going to make him perform worse than he ever did before. And that's that's happened. Like singers have collapsed on me and broken mm. by trying to overdo it, overproduce them. Mm. Tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Having, you know, an artist sing to me, you know, not to me, but mm -hmm. sing into a mic and me really feeling what they're saying and them believing what they're saying. And, uh, you know, I get emotional when I'm listening to stuff like that. Uh, tears will come out of me if I'm really feeling the music. It doesn't have to be mm -hmm. a sad song, but, you know, it just it strikes me emotionally. So there have been a couple of moments where, you know, two artists I can remember have sung songs where I've... And I've wept from wow. it. Yeah. That's very cool. How about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it? Worst moments is, again, trying to overproduce and trying to instill your will on a band. Mm. What, you, what you do in that situation is lose their trust. And that's the worst thing that can happen. That's, that's happened to me, too, where they're second-guessing what you're saying. Or hmm. trying to do too many things at once, trying to produce two bands at your studio at once. I don't know how these Oof. guys do that sort of stuff. When I get an artist in, it's them and only them. I, I can't possibly have like three things going on and me running in and out. Again, that will just make me make three of the same record. And I don't ever want to do that. That, that, that is an interesting point because I think that most of the people who do do that, they're making a record that does sound the same a lot and not coming up with like this unique vision of how to make that band that band. It's more how to make that band go through the their process and i don't know if it's bands have chosen me or i've been lucky enough to choose the bands but if you look at my discography i don't really do a one genre mm -hmm. it's so multifaceted and i like it that way i want it that way and i think that's why they've chosen to work with me because i offer different elements of different facets from different genres you know i'm not a metal guy only a metal guy and i'm not an indie guy only an indie guy but i'll dabble in all of that and hardcore too you know I like it all. I just like really good music played by really good musicians who have really good songs, <laughs> nice. which is not the easiest thing to come by. Nice. Uh, so let's get into some of your taste in music. What's a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect? Nigel Godrich made OK Computer mm -hmm. Radiohead. What's perfect about it? There's, it's a flawless record. Mm -hmm. It's organic. It's performed by fantastic musicians. It's got incredible dynamics. Sonically, it's just a beautiful listen. I cannot get sick of that record to this day. It's still at least once a week on my, when I get a chance to listen to something. It, it's one of those records that I'm like, I have to hear this again. It, it's just so beautiful and performed so well. And you believe everything he's saying when he sings. His lyrics are genius. They're so not stock or mm. go-to. Uh, he sings wonderfully. It's produced and performed perfectly. And I know it took the better part of a year to make a record, but you know, I don't know how, again, how it takes me six weeks to kind of get through a record of 12 to 14 hour days. I don't know how people make records in a week nowadays. I, 
I, I can't make anything that means anything in a week. It's funny because like you do say say that thing of like they took a better or harder year, and then but then you hear that with from Nigel Godrich, he always says like that records two and a half to four hour mixes because they got everything so down exactly the way it was supposed to be that it was really just adding reverb and doing some levels. Correct. That's yeah. correct. And that's why I don't like amp simulators because when you work here, we really find the sound that works best for the song that's going to, you know, bring out the character and really, you know, enhance the song and the vibe of the song. If I leave that to a mix or later on, well, the song's going to sound the same. I'm going to throw a simulator on or reamp it later on through the same amp and, you know, that 10 or 12 song record's going to sound like one big song. And that's a sin, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that. Uh so tell me about five of your favorite records throughout your life and how they shaped your mu musical growth. Obviously, Radiohead, as I just said, mm -hmm. uh, OK Computer. Muse Absolution. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the band is turned for the, for the worse. <laughs> but that particular record, because I'm such a huge fan of classical music, mm -hmm. and I went to school for music ed, and I was drilled with classical music, that touched on a way... And their chord progressions was just so well done and, and rec again, recorded and produced and, and done so tastefully. Mm -hmm. Mars Volta de Laos is an incredible piece of music. From front to back, rhythmically, it's outstanding and lyrically tasteful, even though you can barely understand what he's saying. Mm -hmm. But it's still still such a dynamic and, you know, you put that on and it moves you. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Believe it or not, Foo Fighters, Color and Shape. Mm -hmm. When they hit that mark, I think that's when David really found his his spot in songwriting and performance. The sound of that record is is wonderful. Gil Norton did a fantastic job with that, and uh, front to back too. I, I listen to that, and it's it's dynamic. There's slow songs, there's fast songs, there's loud songs. It's it, and it, they all don't sound the same. There's different drum sounds and different drum tones, which I really believe in changing out drum sets throughout a record all the time. Kick snares change. So that, that's made me realize that, hey, you shouldn't use the same kick and snare and overheads and mic placement throughout a record. You should move that around and give each song its own personality. So that directed me in that. Then the heavier side of stuff, I love Deftones Around the Fur. Hmm. When I heard that record, it blew my head off. I'm like, wow, that's what rock should sound like. Because it's not corny, you know, it's meaningful and it's aggressive. And, you know, Chino is not the greatest singer, but mm -hmm. wow, he is an excellent vocalist. Mm -hmm. You know, you, he's got a very distinct sound and a unique character. And uh, of all the records I'm talking about, each one of these singers and vocalists are still standing and they stand the test of time, and they're still stars, you know? Mm. So that made me want to make records that stand the test of time and are timeless. I don't want to be flashing the pan producer, and I don't want my bands to be flashing the pan bands. Hey, you're hot now, and who cares tomorrow? Mm. So that's how these records have kind of steered me into an overall soundscape of organic and timeless effort that I make. Nice. How about three of your favorite producers? Uh, well... Rich Costi did three of the records that I spoke about. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. So I'm a fan of his, obviously, Nigel Godrich, and mm -hmm. then one who's not on anybody's radar anymore, or maybe he is, I don't know what he's doing, a guy named Pierre Marchand, hmm. who was the drummer and husband of Sarah McLaughlin, and he hmm. produced all of her records. And if you listen huh. her records, man, wow, are they beautiful. Hmm. Just stunning recording. Just impeccable 
art. Interesting. I'm gonna have to check that that out. So it's rare on the podcast now that we're about 30 episodes in uh, that we have somebody who did one of the records that a lot of other producers have cited on this podcast. So I want to see if you had any insight and could recall anything uh, special about the As Cities Burn, the name of it's now escaping me, but I know it's one of my favorite records too. Uh, was it I Loved You at Your Darkest or something like that? Son, I Loved You at Your it, Darkest. Yes. Is there anything you could recall from that that you could shed some light on? It was an incredible time. It was when I was first coming up into the scene mm-hmm. and uh i had mixed uh and worked on and produced a hopes fall record mm-hmm. and their manager contacted me about working with them and i listened to the demos and it spun my head around <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the rhythm being so spastic mm-hmm. i guess you would call it and i really embraced what they were up to and and loved working on that record i mean yeah, those mixes were 10, 12-hour mixes. Wow. And, you know, they came in and heard them, and we were all just kind of doing a group hug cry thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I still talk to them today, and they're still nice guys. You know, our Colin is a, a Kansas City Royal fan, and I'm a Met fan, so <laughs> we were going at it in the World Series. And, uh, yeah, it was just a – it ended up being such a – you know, you never know when you're working on records – What's going to move people? What's going to move the needle? You know, I did a Stalls Lion self-titled record. And the mm-hmm. record they did before that didn't make a blip. And uh, we did the self-titled. And who knew, mm-hmm. you know, that people would pay attention and really dig the record. So sometimes you never know. And sometimes you're listening to it and you're like, this is fantastic. And people should realize. I guess that's how I felt when we were doing A City's Burn. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was a, a moving record. And people immediately embraced by by the sound and what they had offered you know very 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 cool insight so what's your favorite record of recent times and what's inspiring you about it i was talking to my assistant about this today what record because i don't get to listen too much Mm -hmm. to uh newer stuff unless somebody throws it in my face or says hey we're doing a mix and i really like the direction of this the new death cab for cutie record is very good you know and rich costi ended up doing it and Mm -hmm. i'm a fan of that band and I know this isn't so new, but uh, Port of Morrow by the Shins is just, mm. uh, again, Rich Costi mixed it. So mm-hmm. just a beautiful sounding record. And the melodies are so great. And they take chances with sounds. And that, you know, when I, I like to take chances with sounds. I like to do stuff that's different. I like to throw mics in different places and use different delays in awkward ways that don't make sense to anybody else. And, you know, the bands I work with half the time are shoegazer bands. So mm-hmm. we get into that sort of vibe. So when I hear these odd sounds on there, it's, it's inspiring to strive for things that nobody else will acquire and then call me and be like, how did you get that? You know, and I'm like, I stole it from the Shins record. <laughs> there is a lot of details on the, the Shins records. Yeah. So our last question is, um, what have you been working on lately that you can talk about, of course? Okay. Uh, well, I'm proud that the O Brother record just got released and mm-hmm. people are liking it. I was lucky enough to mix that record. I fought hard to mix it because I loved the band for two years prior and people are really embracing the natural soundscape uh, andy hall from manchester produced it mm-hmm. uh, with a couple of his friends over there in their studio and it just sounds wonderful uh, i just finished producing the new gates record mm-hmm. that's coming out in june i just completed final mixes on hail the sun mm-hmm. which is on equal vision Great band. and uh, i just finished mixing another production by andy hall uh the all get out record oh cool sending that over to mastering today and wow that kid can write man nathan yeah. really talented kid yeah i mastered their last uh, two records and oh. i love i love what he does 
Yeah, yeah. Kid's such a good writer. And then I saw them do this acoustic thing. He was out with Andy and with uh, Casey from The Deer Hunter, and they played uh, Belmore Bellhouse. Wow. It's incredible when you see just a vocalist up there with an acoustic guitar in front of 600 people, and you you can hear people breathing. It's so quiet. That's awesome. You know? It's so quiet for them. It's just all three of them are just super talented, so it's really incredible to see that sort of thing. I mean, there's more in the works that I can't talk about. Again, until I finish something, mm-hmm. I can talk about it because you never know what's going to happen. Yep. But, uh, there's other cool stuff coming. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 